engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 151. Today in the show, we are joined by Randy Newberg, and we're discussing my very first black bear hunt, western whitetails, and the latest in conservation and public lands issues. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, I am joined by a very special guest, and that's someone we mentioned just a bit last week, Randy Newberg. And you know Randy as a previous guest on the podcast, I think in two different episodes, but Randy is also the host of the television show Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. He's the host of the Hunt Talk Radio podcast and one of the premier spokesmen and defenders of hunting public lands, and conservation in North America. And I was recently lucky to be able to head out on a public land black bear hunt with Randy. So in today's episode, Randy joins me to discuss our little adventure, and he's going to share some spot and stock black bear 101 info as well, in case anyone else wants to try a hunt like this in the future. We also talk western whitetails, and then finally we wrap up the show by discussing the latest events related to the future of hunting and public lands conservation, and a few of our thoughts on these issues that are likely to impact all of our ability to hunt and fish and recreate in the outdoors in the future. So that is the game plan and this one was a lot of fun to record. I hope you all enjoy just, you know, half as much listening to this as we did actually sitting down and recording this with the mic. So with that, I do want to briefly pause to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And, you know, last week I mentioned that our Sitka story today would be related to that black bear hunt I was headed out on. And I mentioned that I might be able to share some audio from that hunt. Unfortunately, I do not have that. So this whole episode, though, really is a Sitka story, as both Randy and I depended on Sitka gear for this hunt and the experiences that we're about to share with you. But I'll mention one technical gear thing that uh, that happened for me on this hunt, and it was on the second day, and it was down, down the valley. It was probably high 60s, really sunny, really warm, and when I was loading up my pack, I had this kind of dilemma. I wasn't sure how many extra warm layers I wanted to put in my pack because right now it was warm, it was hot. I didn't want to have a bunch of stuff in my pack. So I sat there and kind of debated this for a second. But 
when I looked at my insulating layers, I had a Kelvin light jacket. It's so small, so light, it packs up right into its pocket. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm bringing that just in case. It's so small, so light. I don't think I'm really going to you know, be inconvenienced by this. So I threw that in the pack just in case it cooled down. And lo and behold, it did. You know, when I was high up on that mountain glassing for bears, the wind came up, the temperatures went down, and it got really cold. Luckily, I had that jacket. I pulled that out, pulled that over, and I can't tell you how happy I was to be able to glass and be just wrapped up in this blanket of warmth from that jacket. So it was a great reminder of how important layering is and and just knowing and having the right layers for the conditions you might face and be able to change out that system as those conditions change. So with all that said, if you would like to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, you can visit sitkagear.com. And just FYI, their new 2017 products have just hit their website and are now available. So you can head over there ASAP to check those out if you're interested. And now for the rest of my Sitka story, my very first spring spot and stock black bear hunt, here's myself and Randy Newberg recording in Bozeman, Montana. And we are back now in studio in person with randy newberg thank you randy for doing this thanks for being here mark i uh i won't even charge you any rent for my <laughs> studio here that's a good deal because this is nice <laughs> this is much nicer than my usual digs and, and really a lot nicer than where i've been recording the last two weeks last week i recorded in my truck pulled off on the side of the road in livingston <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think two weeks before that, I was in a campground parking lot in the truck using the juice off of like the little cigarette adapter to keep the whole thing running. <laughs> so this is a big upgrade. Uh, yeah. For, for those who don't know, we're sitting in my CPA office here in Bozeman, Montana right now in the quiet room. This this room right here, because this is where we hold client conferences uh-huh. and it's uh, Obviously, confidentiality is a big deal. Yep. That's why this room is soundproof, so it sounds like a studio. It's it's very nice. So, it's it's really good. So, but, but there are no dead animals hanging on the wall here. No, there's a couple of nice pictures. Yeah, but we need this. This room needs some dead animals. Could you bring some Randy Newberg flavor to it? I I would like to, but since my name's not out on the front door anymore, since I sold my partnership interest, <laughs> something tells me those might end up in the trash uh-huh. bin. Well. But, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, how do I say this? I'm very lucky, I think, to be here right now talking to you about this stuff because you have just been incredibly generous with your time this past week with me. Uh-oh. And I just need to start by thanking you for that because this all started just because I was going to have coffee with you the right. other day. And we're just going to catch up a little bit and, and talk about um, some local knowledge I had that might be helpful to you and your son and just other things. And yeah. somehow that coffee led to multiple hunts and a podcast and me just taking all sorts of your time. So I don't think you know what you're getting into when you you agreed to get coffee. You Uh, might be regretting it now. Actually, my my wife said, don't you have something to do? And I looked up and I saw that Mark Kenyon was in the neighborhood. I said, well, there's something to do. I'll take Mark on some hikes every evening and, and I'll take him to what I pretend are my favorite bear spots and we won't see a bear. I, I'm sorry, Mark. I, I don't know what I did wrong. You don't need to apologize one bit because this was my very first bear hunt, uh-huh. and it was a really cool experience. So what I was hoping we could do here was 
talk about what we did. Sure. How we did it, how it went. Yeah. Um, but then I also wanted to dive a little bit into the, the how-to part of it because mm-hmm. you know, I'd never gone bear hunting before yeah. this. And so before I knew I was going to go with you, I was planning on just going out there solo on my own. So I was reading every article I could find and watching YouTube videos and, and just trying to figure out how am I going to find some black bears on my own here in the spring, Yeah. Um, which was a little bit daunting. There's not as much information online about doing your own spring black bear hunt as I, as I would have thought there would be. Right. Um, so for anyone listening, I'm hoping we can give some people kind of a one-on-one of, hey, if you want to go out here and try something like this, which which I highly, highly recommend now. Yeah. Um, how can they do that? So I'm yeah. hoping we can get into that too. And that's just, some, just some don't follow stuff. Randy Newberg around if you want to see black bears. Right? <laughs> I learned that the hard way. <laughs> no, no, uh, but, so, no so. it's cool because you came to Montana, you bought your bear tag over the counter. Our season opens here yeah. statewide, April 15th. And there's place, actually I shouldn't say statewide. Each there, there's some places that have different opening dates and different closing dates, but the general rule is from April 15th to June 15th, spring bear season is open. And in Montana, you can't bait and you can't use hounds. Whereas if you go over to the border just west of here in Idaho, mm-hmm. most of their units, not all, you can bait and some of them you can use hounds. You go south of us here in Wyoming and just about every unit you can bait uh, but I don't know about the use of hounds in Wyoming. So, but all three of those states are over the counter. That's pretty cool. It, yeah. it, and it's, it's very, very, I mean, it's over the counter. It's a time of year where most of us don't already have obligations other right. than if you're turkey hunting or something like that. Yeah. And it's a chance to get up in the mountains and it's beautiful. Hunt. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a yeah. great time to be out there. Yeah. And shoot. Normally, Mark. In two nights sitting on those ridges we were on, I would average two to three bears an evening. But well, let's not spoil it quite yet. Okay, let's start at the beginning and work our way to tell them how many bears we ended up seeing on these evenings. Okay, <laughs> all right. So I'll, I'll let you lead the discussion. Then. Yeah, yeah. So, so you told me that um, that I was welcome to join you on on this bear hunt, and the first one I think was last week Thursday, maybe. Yeah. Um, so we met at a parking lot. My wife was gracious enough to drive me back and forth to these things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had to sign a waiver that I'd bring you back in one piece. <laughs> yeah. And you did that very well. You got me back with no injuries. Um, and I got to meet your cameraman. Yep. Your two cameramen who are great guys. Very cool. Yeah, Marcus and um, Michael are good guys. Yep, that was fun. Um, holy smokes, though. Michael, your new guy. Yeah. He can sweat. Yeah. He can sweat up a storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd look back and Michael's hat, we, we'd be about a fourth way up the hill, and that dude, he's he's just pouring it out. Oh, man, he was too. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so we, we, we went off to this piece of public land, and basically the game plan was to just hike and hike and hike up to the top of this kind of glassing knob or small mountain, yeah. um, whatever you want to call it. And we're gonna we're gonna watch from there. So so my first question for you, Randy, was why there? Um, mm-hmm. I asked that seriously and a little bit facetiously. Why there? Yeah. <laughs> what was what was the thought process in in our plan there? In yeah. That night there. And, and my thought is, I always want to get to a place that gives me the greatest amount of view shed. 
how how many places can I glass from that spot? And as you saw, about the only place we couldn't glass was to our south. Mm-hmm. To the east, the west, the north, we had this huge vista for miles. And yeah, some of that out in front of us would have been private. Some of it would have been public. Uh, but the idea is when, when spring bears come out of their dens, and we've had a pretty hard winter here, so... My gut's telling me maybe we're a week behind just because of how cold and how much snow we had. Uh, those bears have the feedback on. They're trying their best to get their digestive tract going again. So they're mowing on the grass and the vegetation. They're maybe looking for winter-killed carcasses. And when you get these stretches of warm days in the Rockies after a long winter, it's usually in late April, early May, you get these three, four, five days where it gets up in the 70s. And that is when bears seem to come out like crazy. And you see them moving a lot. They're they're not that stationary in the spring. They're moving, just looking for feed, looking for feed. And so that's why I get to glassing spots. You'll see them moving across the openings. You'll see them moving across a hillside. And the idea is once I see them, how do I get in front of them? Does it look like they're heading someplace to feed? Is there some really nice green lush spot that as the snow has receded up the hill, up the mountain, a lot of times you get these patches that are just way greener than the rest of the mountain. And usually they're heading to those green spots. And so I'm, if I see them, I'm trying to get there. So yeah. that, that was the, the method to my madness in well, picking that spot. Uh, okay, so, so I will divulge the secret now. That first night we did not see a bear. Right. doing any of those things that you said but it sure looked like a place that you could right i mean everything you just described there just seemed to be to a t the view was incredible the scenery was incredible right um the the other thing that i forgot to mention about what i'm looking for mark i'm also looking to be near calving and fawning grounds mm-hmm. of elk and deer because when those elk calves and deer fawns start hitting the ground in late may early june those black bears for them that's like buffet time and i know a lot of us are like oh i hate thinking about bears eating all these little calves and fawns uh but that's just the reality what goes on out there so these black bears are tuned into that they know where these calving grounds are and where these fawning areas are and how many elk did we see every night oh my gosh we Hundred. saw so Did many elk yeah. so many elk and deer deer muleys white tails i mean it was we didn't see bears but we saw so many critters i mean right. that was just fun to just and sit that, up there in glass that, that area we went to for whatever reason that i can't explain i don't know if it's because of past fires if it's because of just the mineral content and the soils in the springtime i see way more cow elk and doe mule deer and doe whitetails in those basins and i think that's where they fawn i think that's where they calve and i think that's why as that's happening the bears know that historically and they're moving towards that spot so that's what i was going to ask how can you if i'm not familiar with an area Mm -hmm. already how do i determine where these calving grounds are is there anything to look for from a habitat standpoint or do i just need to figure it out by glassing and walking around and- I, I wish i could tell you that i had some science to it fortunately for me i live here so i spend a lot of time in these hills mm-hmm. and i see it if i had to find some characteristics to it uh 
as you know, there's a huge burn there. Those burn areas generate unbelievable amounts of feed, but also quality of feed. And a lactating elk or a lactating deer, they want the highest quality food they can can find. So those burns provide that. Uh, but even away from the burns, there were still a lot of those animals. And I, I wish I could tell you what makes the, I, I can go to four basins that all look the same, but for some reason, two of those four, the elk and deer will select those. Hmm. The other two, they'll just kind of disregard. And I, I'm not smart enough to know why. I, I wish I could tell you why. <laughs> is there any like elevation band? Like you're usually seeing them at a certain height maybe or anything the, like that? The, there is definitely. And we were talking about that on the mountain the other day uh, about those elevation bands seem to have the same uh, greenness and lushness. Uh, and I think that's because of as the snow, it, it's somewhat dependent upon where that elevation is to the snow retreating up the hill. Uh, also just geography and geology. Uh, the geology of it is you get a lot of faulting and stuff in the mountains. And so you might have one area that's mostly granite, one area that's mostly limestone. And those bands of one or the other are going to have different forage types. Um, a geologist friend of mine taught me this where he only hunts limestone areas because really? his experience shows that ungulates prefer feeding in areas with limestone as the soil composition. Wow. And I never really thought about that till I started doing it. And I'm like, whoa, look at that. So that is something you pay attention to now? I do now. Wow. I, I didn't then. Uh, and he's a geologist. So it's, it's interesting to hunt yeah. with a geologist. He, I'm looking at the, the total landscape. He's looking at, he, oh, this, we're in a good limestone stretch here. To me, I'm like, who cares if it's limestone, granite, something in between? I don't care if it's, you know, mud and, and bog. Right. Well, for him, he understands how that soil composition translates into minerals being absorbed by the plant communities and how the wildlife selects that. It was, Fascinating. Yeah, it was. So there might be areas where it's a function of of the elevation, but that elevation might be there just because of the soil composition at that point hmm. or at, at wow. that elevation. So, again, I in the fall, it's, a, it's much more pronounced in the fall that, uh, at least for mule deer, in, in hunting season, I see the the does and fawns heading and the young bucks heading down lower following. So in, in August, things start drying up in the Rockies and it gets brownish colored. You see with the first snow, often you see the does, fawns and in young mule deer bucks head lower. And then anywhere from a thousand to 1500 feet in elevation above them, the mature bucks will stage and they will stage there through the end of October until the first few days of November. And then all of a sudden the, <laughs> the trigger comes on and you see them down lower with, with the, uh, younger bucks and the does and fawns. And, Interesting. and we've taken where, where you and I were bear hunting, we've taken three really nice mule deer bucks in those staging areas there. Wow. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's not a good place to hunt because when the rut starts, all these bucks drop down onto the private. Well, yeah, they do in the rut because that's where the does are. But 
they're up on the public in that pre-rut phase. Just before. Yeah. So it seems like that area has been very productive for you. Yeah. We've, uh, we've, uh, shot a couple bears in there. We've shot some nice mule deer, shot a whitetail. We filmed a whitetail hunt in that area, uh, elk hunt. So it's, it's a, it's a good spot, but one thing, and people are starting to realize this with when they see our images and they see our video, uh, someone sent me an email and it, that's when it kind of struck me that, oh, people are catching on and Randy, everything you film, every picture I see of you, you guys are in burns. What's up with all the burns? And I don't want to say there aren't critters, uh, in areas that haven't burned, but in the Rockies, the, the Rockies are a, they, it evolved as a fire prone ecosystem before man started suppressing fire. These places were burning every 20, 25, 30 years. And so uh, if you talk to the, the historians and the biologists, they said that before that, uh, our suppression of these fires happened, wildlife would move to wherever these mosaic patterns of burns were at. Well, Randy is kind of like that. these critters. I'm moving <laughs> to wherever these burns right. are at. And uh, so that's... Uh, that's part part of why I think that area in the last five, six years has been pretty good. Now, you look at it, and those burns are starting to get a little bit older. They're starting to get grown up uh, with, with new trees. Mm -hmm. And so I might have to abandon that spot in the next few years and start looking for where's the next burn that's two or three years old. So here's my two questions on that. Number mm -hmm. one, what's the time frame after a burn that's best? So mm -hmm. is it one to five years or whatever that is? And then number two, how do you go about finding these burns um, other than just being there in person? Can you actually find them when looking online on maps and stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I want to tell all those secrets, but I'm going <laughs> to. Uh, as the, the first one's easy. Uh, I hunt burns certainly within one year after the fire. If it's an early summer burn and you get fall moisture, I'll go and hunt that burn that fall. Hmm, wow. um, but certainly the next year for the, possibly up to the next 10 years. Uh, okay. And if there are other burns nearby that they can select from that are newer burns, they're going to go select those newer areas. If it's all nothing but dark timber and that burn is 10 years old, they'll still be in that 10-year-old burn before they'll be in that dark timber. So how long do I hunt them? It, it just depends. It, a little bit depends. I, I always like to hunt the freshest burn I can find. Let's yep. put it that way. Okay. As far as where to find them, uh, the generic answer is there's a website called NCWeb, I-N-C-I-W-E-B, and it'll show you current status of fires. So in the summertime, I can be dialing in and watching that so am i allowed to plug a product here you can do whatever you want right okay now. you are you're outside of my control i take no responsibility <laughs> no responsibility for whatever you might do so, right <laughs> a lot of people know that i use the onyx map system and on their cell phone their, their smartphone app the the hunt app it's called there's a layer called fire layers goes all the way back to 2000 i can't believe i'm telling everybody this <laughs> but that's it, it and so you add that layer on, on your smartphone app and it will show you what year the fire was 
the it'll give a a polygon uh uh outline of uh-huh. where the fire was interesting oh it's it's the if if you're doing desk scouting like i am uh I don't know how you, how you do it without having that fire data. If if, if you're thinking of coming out west, uh, and and you're in a quandary for where to start, my default is find the burns, and and you will find elk. I think we or elk, deer, whatever. I think we have this. We grow up with this idea, and and I think hunters are the worst because we see these hunting magazine pictures and stuff of these big high meadows beautiful dark timber around mm-hmm. the edges of them you'll never see me hunting there i mean that might look pretty but if you're an elk or you're a mule deer you're like keep right on trucking there's nothing to eat there All right so i'm looking at these ugly burns and the number of elk and deer bedded in those burns is crazy most people just i think visually they say that's there's not going to be anything there. Or if it was there, I'd see it standing up. They can bed in that stuff and be just about invisible. Oh, I imagine. So it's, uh, that, that's kind of a diversion about uh, how all of that connects to bear hunting. But it is somewhat connected to yeah. where I select where I'm going to bear hunt. Well, in, on night number two of the hunt, we thought we, you thought you had spotted a bedded bear in a burn area, right. close to a burn area, yeah. um, too. It did not turn out to be a bear. <laughs> I, I don't think so either. That or he stayed motionless for three hours. <laughs> or several days. Right, because he was there <laughs> a couple of days earlier also. <laughs> but it did look like it certainly could have been one. Yeah. And I got excited there for a moment because like, I've got a bed of bear. And I'm like, all right, you think we can get over there in time? You're like, yeah, we're going to go for it if it's him. And so I, I got fired up. Day two, we're going to get on a bear. Yeah, I, I feel terrible, Mark. I was about <laughs> ready to throw my stuff in my pack, and it would have been about, I don't know, what, mile and a half over there? Yeah. It would have dropped about a 1,000 feet elevation and had to pick up another 800 going up the other side. But we would, in two hours, we would have had time to, to move in on it, but yeah. it turned out not to be a bear. It was not a bear. and <sighs> False alarm. And that was the story of the rest of night number two as well. Yeah, that that's what I tell people that bear hunting in the spring anyhow is two hours of hiking uh, followed by three or four hours of board just glassing <laughs> with the hope that that boredom is interrupted by 15 minutes of absolute chaos. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's kind of how it is. Yeah. But it's that's not too much different than tree stand whitetail hunting. Very true. Uh, you know, yeah, you're probably not going to hike for two hours, but how often do you sit there thinking, oh man, today's not the day, today's not the day, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you turn and look to, over your left shoulder and there's Big Hank standing there. You're like, that's instantly, like, big pulse of adrenaline. Exactly. So I kept telling myself the whole night last night, you know, as the clock was ticking down, I just kept saying, stay focused any second. Like, even with only five <laughs> minutes left before we go, that black form could step out and it could be game on. Yeah. And it always seems to be whenever you let your guard down, whenever you mentally kind of check out and say, eh, it's not going to happen, woe is me, it seems like when that happens, that's when all of a sudden they show up and you're not ready and you miss your opportunity. Um, so I'm constantly tra- – it's like so mental, any kind of hunting right. is, obviously. But yeah. it's always how can you stay in it, how can you stay positive and be focused. And many times it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Um, and and- – 
I struggle with that. I get bored easily. I, I must have <laughs> yeah. some sort of attention disorder. Uh, but one of the things I found that helps me through that is going to a place where there's a lot of other wildlife. Yeah, it keeps me interested to see. Oh wow, three new, th- three different elk I hadn't seen just walked out mm-hmm. into that opening, or wow, where'd that group of mule deer come from, or whatever it might be. And and I don't know. It just makes it easier to to be encouraged and be excited and and keep your eye on the through the optics on the hillside. Yeah. So. Yeah, as a, as a hunter, I think most of us are just generally, you know, enjoy watching wildlife and just seeing them do their thing. And and that was that was a blast, just getting to watch so many deer and elk move around, interact with each other, occasionally see us. There was that one cow elk on the first night that came right on up the hill, right towards us. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Yeah, come from downwind too. It was I, bizarre. I don't know if. I, I'm, I can't explain why she would come that close after smelling us. She had to have smelled us you coming in so. from downwind like yeah. that. What did you think about seeing whitetails at 6,500 feet? I was very surprised. Yeah. I, you just assume that these deer would be staying way down low in their bottoms. Yeah. And it was just cool. It, it made me <laughs> excited to someday want to hunt whitetails up in a place like that. You don't think, I would never think that you could chase whitetails way up high like that surrounded by snow-covered peaks and being up in them yeah um that is really cool and it combines my love of mountains with my love of whitetails in the same place um you got to be careful randy you might show up one night oh there's mark in a tree (laughs) who's that guy in that tree stand there hey (laughs) i'll i'll watch if i see a truck with michigan plates at the trailhead you know it's trouble i'll be like "Uh uh-oh i can't tell this guy any more of my secrets (laughs) no it's fun to to go and hunt whitetails in spots like that i have a whole bunch of spots scattered across montana like that that i found them while elk hunting and i'm I'll never be able to get rid of my whitetail problem. Uh, growing up in northern Minnesota, uh-huh. I I think now I've shot 25 uh, bucks since I've moved to Montana. Wow. Uh, and I think only four of those have been mule deer bucks. Wow. All the rest have been whitetails. Yeah. And so you come if you come to Montana, everyone's got the elk mindset. It's elk, 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 elk. And... They should. I mean, we got great elk hunting. They're cool. But you will see guys walk through some of the best whitetail hunting on their way elk hunting. And I'm just sitting there. They think I'm taking a break and and, uh, being lazy. (laughs) Well, I'm sitting there because I know how many whitetails come Uh trotting through these spots. So it's it's just cool where you can have that. Because when you were out here last year, you hunted a classic kind of Montana pattern of... uh, a riparian area, mm-hmm. uh, which that elevation there of where you were hunting is probably 2,000 to 2,500 feet lower than yeah. where we were seeing these whitetails the last few days. Yeah, it, it, and it's so cool to have both of those options, to be able to hunt them in either or different types of habitat. Um, you can kind of choose your own adventure. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> there's so many of those different places. I'm already, I've been thinking about do I want to hunt a different place this coming fall for whitetails in Montana? Or do I go back to the old spot? Because that was pretty great. And I, you know, I just recently went shedding there and found some nice antlers. Oh, man, that'd be fun. But I also like the idea of exploring these new places and the new, you know, there's a, there's something to be said about figuring out 
the new area, learning the behaviors and the patterns. How do they use this terrain? Where are they coming from? Where are they going to? Um, that's just a part of like the hunt that I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, but maybe it hurts my ability to kill more deer because I'm constantly jumping <laughs> from new spot to new spot. I never take enough time to <laughs> really uh, figure it out. What, what do you think of my idea of the Rocky Mountain Whitetail Trifecta? I think it's awesome. I would. So, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. So last year we got we, we pulled off two of the three. We did Montana. I shot a really nice whitetail buck in Montana. We hopped over the border, uh, northern Wyoming. Uh, my buddy Matt Seidel from uh, Onyx Map shot a really nice whitetail in Wyoming. We need to get, if my calendar would fit it, we need to get Idaho in there. Because the whole month of November, pretty much, you can hunt whitetails with a rifle in all three of those states. Wow. And... The, the general population of those three states, they drive by all these whitetails looking for elk. Right. So if I was a Midwest guy, and I, I certainly if I lived in the Midwest, I'm not going to miss my peak rut period with my bow. Uh, but after that, you could, there's so much public land, you could come and easily do Montana and Wyoming or Montana and Idaho as two of the three pick up a tag in most instances over the counter uh maybe in montana now we're getting more demand for our deer tags so you might have to apply in the draw wyoming all those good whitetail spots you can usually get as a leftover tag after the draw idaho never sells out all their deer tags so you can get that over the counter Gotta watch out because you are talking to <laughs> a lot of whitetail nuts right now. <laughs> you might show up for your whitetail trifecta uh, and see well, Dozens of if, we can't do it, if we can't do it in 17, <laughs> I think in 2018, I can't think of a better guy to do the Rocky Mountain Whitetail Trifecta with than Mark Kenyon. I would love to do that. that that's an invitation if you want to take it. Well, then you, you, you've you learned the hard way that when, when you throw these invitations out, I take them. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we do it with rifles, Mark. I'm, I'm fine with that. You're okay with that? I'm fine right. with that. I'll, okay. I'll just plan on killing a few with a bow beforehand. I'll head out with the with the firearm for the trifecta, and okay. that would be a blast. And I, I would love to see the rut out west here with these whitetails because, you know, back home in a lot of places I hunt, the the number of bucks is, is much lower. The ratio of bucks to does is much yeah. lower. The ratio of age structure here, the density of deer is incredible. Yeah. The age structure seems terrific. Yeah. And the number of bucks to does is just crazy, crazy compared to anything I've seen. Yeah. So I just cannot imagine the competition for these does that must be going on in November. It's got to be pure chaos. It, it is. If you sit in some of these creek bottoms, and I told you this as we were walking off the mountain the other night, that even if they told me I couldn't hunt whitetails here, that I could just watch them, I would have so much fun sitting in these creek bottoms on November 8th because it is chaos these bucks have to compete so hard because there's so many other bucks uh -huh. and they are just all day long running like crazy you'll see them rutting that hard even into thanksgiving that's awesome and their tongues are hanging out they look like they're they're so withered you wonder how's this buck gonna <laughs> yeah. make the winner yikes yeah somehow they do i i would i would love love to see that so i guess i'm i'm coming out <laughs> okay. Whenever you decide to do that, I, I will make that work because that okay. would just be too much fun. It'd be a lot of fun. Oh my gosh, yeah. We do a podcast every night. I, I'd be up for that. I, I think there'd be plenty to talk about. Yeah. Well, so. if, each, if each of us had a tag, that'd be six tags we'd have to fill. I could do a whole TV season 
<laughs> of just whitetails. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. A lot of good YouTube videos, at least. Yeah, That's a lot of sure. good YouTube stuff. That would be that would be awesome. Um, back to bears, though. Bears, yeah. Back Sorry, bears. see, we get distracted. That, that's part of being whitetail nuts. He, he, everything kind of spirals down I that know. direction. And and that's really what we should be talking about since this is traditionally a whitetail podcast. But I want to cover a little of this bear stuff because the sure. bears are pretty darn cool. Yep. Um, so we didn't end up seeing a bear either night. No. Nope. But um, what I want to touch on is in the future, next time I come out, if I'm doing this on my own, or if somebody's listening and they want to try this someday, We've talked a little bit about some of the places to look, but what else does a first-time black bear hunter need to know heading out in the spring somewhere trying to do a spot and stock hunt? Is there anything we haven't touched on as far as where to look for them, as far as when to be out there, as far as, uh, I don't know, specific glassing techniques or things to consider when you're actually stalking in on them? Anything else that we need to cover there? Yeah. Um, let's start with uh, you know, the person who's coming out who's never bear hunted before. Um, if you want to give yourself the best advantage, I'd say come out May 10th through the 20th, then in across all three of the, the, the states we're talking about, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, uh, you're going to have bears that are moving around because the bear breeding season starts in late May and runs through about June 15th. So if you want to find, if you're really focused on say a big boar he's going to be most active the first part of june because he's searching out females um the downside of that is is sometimes their hide can be rubbed really really bad by then so it's it's a little bit of a trade-off but usually this is a dumb question i'm sorry to interrupt sure but being a non-bear hunter when you say their hides are rubbed up is that they're just rubbed up on trees it's just it's the the hair their winter coat is starting to shed okay so it's some some of the old boars it doesn't happen nearly as pronounced as with the sows the sows uh, i think they come out of the dens a little earlier and they i've seen some mangy looking uh, sows that just it you look at them and you think my goodness who would (laughs) not that you you would you you select for boars anyhow because right. bears have a low reproductive rate, so you, you'd always want to pass on a sow if you possibly can. But rub means they look like they rubbed against a tree. It doesn't necessarily mean they're rubbing against trees. It's just okay. uh, they're they're transitioning kind of like your dog is shedding, but they don't shed smoothly. They're big patches and chunks come out. Now, oh. usually the areas that, that will shed first will be the front legs and then the flanks. Hmm. Um and uh, you'll you'll know it, you'll look at it. You're like, what's wrong with that bear? And usually it's mangy. it's they're rubbed. Okay. So, but back back to the point about where to find them. Uh, if you came out May 10th through the 20th, you're you're gonna catch a a window there that pretty much every bear is out of their den by that time. Uh, it's gonna be a little bit dependent upon weather, uh, how far up the mountain they are. Um, uh, for me, I look for, uh, so think about in the springtime, they come out of the den, they got to get their digestive system going again. They've been hibernating for five months, six months, and they are hitting vegetation heavy at that point. Uh, they love the really succulent stuff like flowers, glacier lilies, skunk cabbage, uh, more so than just grasses. And a lot of times you'll look 
up the mountain and if you take your binoculars or spotting scope you'll see some of those places that have this deeper green to it and it also might have a lot of flowers looks like flowers that's those are the places i i look for um and i'm not a bear expert by any stretch uh there's some guys who they have it absolutely dialed in because they've hunted the same mountain range for 20 years Uh, there's nothing that beats that but you could come out in most places in the rockies and if you find those kind of spots that give you multiple places to glass multiple openings uh the odds are you're going to encounter a few bears and in, in that area pay attention to what pattern or what what is happening okay i saw this bear at nine thousand feet wow the, yesterday i saw bears up around nine thousand feet well guess what there's something at that nine thousand foot level that's attracting them yeah. uh, or it might be the flip side okay they're de- wow i climbed up to 7500 they're all down at 6800 so or it might be all right they're all on north facing slopes where the snow still hasn't melted they're even right on the edge of the snow it, it these bears are in so many different places it's you're going to have a pretty good chance of seeing them. Uh, one thing they do like nearby usually is some shady place to bed during the day. Uh, you asked me on the mountain the other night, do I ever hunt in the morning? And, and I don't, I'm not saying that it's not good bear hunting in the morning. It's just that I never do it. Uh, and very few of the guys I know hunt in the morning. I think I've heard this a lot from other people too. Yeah, they uh, tend to focus on afternoons for right. a reason. And, and I don't know if that's just, I don't know if that's a habit <laughs> that we've collectively formed. Right. Uh, but I've, I have, when I first started bear hunting, I spent a lot of time hunting all day long. And I would say overwhelmingly the number of encounters I, or bears I spotted were from three in the afternoon on hmm. till dark. Um, Question about location. Yeah. One thing, um, when I think about chasing elk or deer out west, lots of times it's how do you get as far away from the road as possible, get away from trailheads, get away from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you worry about as much with bear hunting or not? I do because the stuff near roads and trailheads is going to be hunted harder. And so your age class of bears uh, is going to be much lower. Uh, it's... If you do have a bear that came out of its den, say he made the mistake of denning near a trailhead, when he comes out and he's first getting his bearings about him, uh, odds are he's going to get picked off. So, you know, I'm usually hiking a mile, mile and a half from a road or trailheads just because I'm, I know that just like elk, uh, even if bears are a little bit more habituated to humans, uh, and sometimes humans provide them food through garbage cans or bird feeders or whatever. Uh, general rule is bears want to be away from people also. So those spots where we were glassing, uh, you know, if we would have seen s- bears in some of those spots, we, we'd hiked in about a mile and a half. We might have had to run another mile and a half. So we would have been three miles from a road at that point. Yeah. So I do, I, I look for those kind of places. What about hunting pressure during spring bear season? I, I, I'm assuming it's much less than elk or deer. Way, 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 way less. Do you still have and, to think about it, though, a decent bit? or? Yeah, I, I do. And I know that hunting pressure is going to be really heavy Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday. 
So if I was traveling out here to do a hunt, I'd want to get here on a Saturday or Sunday, scout a little bit, and then really start my hunting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. And you'd almost have it to yourself. That's good um, to know. Yeah. And it, I mean, we had no problems during our weekday hunts. Yeah. I, I mean, if you're going to plan time to come out, uh, that's what I would do. So that I, makes sense. I mean, they're... The amount of hunting pressure for spring bears compared to deer and elk is not even, I don't even think it's 10%. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to be out there and not worried about seeing people all the time. Yeah. It was really nice being out there. You know, last night we were talking about, we were just sitting out and, you know, I was a little bit bumming out. We hadn't seen any bears, but I kind of caught myself and I was like, look around you right now. You are surrounded by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of public land stretching in every direction as far as the eye can see that is we own title to yeah. and we can roam it walk it hunt it explore it and it's just i'm I'm constantly in awe when i when i take a second to step back from whatever i'm focused on and just like look around and be like this is this is incredible. There's nobody else out here right now. I don't think there would have been a single other <laughs> person probably out there. I mean, there, there could have been, but you right. would never know it. If if there was, in our two nights, we did not see another yeah. hunter. It's, we saw we heard, saw some turkeys. <laughs> there were a couple hammering off. Yeah. yeah any of you have ever taken Mark on a bear hunt when there's some turkeys gobbling <laughs> down below? You almost have to tether him to a tree. <laughs> I uh, did get excited. I uh, I got a kick out of that. That's the first time I'd ever seen turkeys up way up in yeah. those drainages like that. I have no idea what they're doing up there. They were gobbling off. Yeah, because the first time you told me you heard one, I said, oh, that's a sandhill crane. Yeah, I was like, man, am I going crazy? I could have <laughs> swore that was a turkey, but I, I, I trusted you. <laughs> then even my bad hearing, I'm like, whoa, that is that turkey. Is turkey. And Mark can call them without a call. That was fun. They were, they were responding just a little... Uh, a little yelping I was doing there. Yeah. But um, to something you mentioned a second ago, mm-hmm. I want to touch on because this is one of the things I was worried about the most when I was planning on going on my own. You mentioned the fact that we should be targeting boars and yep. not sows because of the fact that mm-hmm. they've got that low reproductive rate. And I had been worried, like, oh, my gosh, am I going to screw up and misidentify? How do mm-hmm. I tell the difference between a male and a female? Um, so I tried to watch the videos. I tried looking at pictures and doing different things like that. Um, but... It's a little hard to do this without showing, but what can you tell us about identifying a male versus a female black bear? How sure. do you do that? Um, the, the the obvious one is if the the sow has cubs. Mm-hmm. Before I go after a bear, I watch it for as long as I think is is good, because I don't want uh, I don't want to run over there, get all excited, and then I get there and here comes a cub or two little cubs walking out of the brush. Um, that's the, your first indicator that it could be a mm-hmm. sow. There's cubs, just enjoy the view and watch and observe. Uh, if there aren't any cubs, if uh, I tell people, if if you went to the supermarket and bought a pear and laid it on its side, you'd have one side of it is like tall and mm-hmm. one side of it is narrow. Well, a sow black bear kind of looks like a pear <laughs> from a side profile. Its rump looks really big. And it gets really dainty out towards the front. Whereas a boar, he looks like a big russet potato. I mean, (laughs) he's big in the rump, he's big in the shoulders, he's big in the neck. Just a refrigerator walking across the Yeah. 
So if you see them at a side profile and they have a smaller front end than they do a back end, you can just about bet that it's a sow. Then if you see them straight on, a, a boar is going to have these big shoulders. They almost look bull-legged when they're walking. Uh, uh, I mean, their front legs are bowed almost, and, and they waddle more than walk. If you s can see it from straight on through your spotting scope and it's a sow, its shoulders are going to look very dainty and narrow, and it's going to walk almost with one foot in front of the other instead of this swagger. Uh, and then as far as the head, a boar is going to have a much bigger head than a sow. A sow is going to look like mostly nose and ears. Hmm. Uh, a boar, uh, a mature boar, his ears are going to be over towards the side of his head instead of like a sow. Her ears are going to be on the top of their he her head. Uh, the, it, there's not one definitive thing, but there's a multitude of things. If you start looking at it, if you've got quite a bit of a gap between the ears, odds are you got a boar. If there's not much gap there... And those ears look pretty big relative to the head. Odds are you have a sow. So there's that's helpful. There's not uh, an absolute science to it. Uh, when you do see a sow with cubs, and you absolutely know that's a sow, observe her for a long time and just try to get a feel for what those traits of her body is, and you'll you'll quickly be able to say mm, next time uh, that that that's probably a sow. Yeah. Um, so there's something just about watching bears mm -hmm. that I find so cool. Like, I think oh, yeah. they are such interesting animals that the things they do or interact and I've watched a, a sow with cubs, both black or grizzly and just seeing how they interact, the things they do. I don't know. There's just something really neat about bears. I can mm -hmm. sit and just watch them for, yeah. for hours. No, I, I think bears are the most comfortable animal when I say comfortable they just go about their business and they really aren't uh, like deer and elk. They're always like spring loaded. Ready. Uh, a bear is just, I'm, I'm big, bad dude. I'm here doing what I'm doing. I'm making noise. I don't care. I'm tearing up roots or snapping off trees or whatever. And this is who I am. I own the joint. Yeah. And it, it's kind of fun to watch them. One of the things that is interesting as you get towards late May, late May when you're watching them, uh, I've seen boars try to uh, interact with sows. And if they have cubs, those sows will run those cubs up those trees huh. immediately. Because uh, a boar, he wants that sow to come into heat. So he will kill. One of the greatest uh, problems with bear reproduction can be boars yeah. killing the offspring of other boars. So he will kill those cubs. And you'll see those sows instantly run those cubs up that tree. And she is acting ornery. And you'll see him that. come walking around and she's like, you want some of this, buddy? I'm going to whoop you. <laughs> and uh, so it's kind of funny to watch. I, I, I enjoy watching them try to interact in late May. It's uh, it's very entertaining. Yeah. That's the one thing I'm just so bummed about is, like, I I literally could do what we did last night seven days in a row, ten days in a row. I wish yeah. I had more time to sit and watch and um, if I lived out here, I'd be doing this a <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I can tell you I, that. I, I am lucky to live in a place where I get to go do that for, you know, last night you asked me how many days will I sit on these mountains just in May. And yeah. 
you know, just here in Montana, it's probably going to be you know, six to ten days this year of just sitting and observing whether whether or not I'm lucky enough to find a bear. I don't know. Uh, and then I'm going to try to go to Idaho in yeah. early June and do the same thing. So I don't know. It's it's good exercise. It's great fun. Uh, and I, I learn a lot when I'm out there, no matter what it is. I'm learning something about that species, whether it's the deer or elk I'm looking at or bears, uh, or just learn something about how that landscape is being used mm -hmm. by the wildlife. Yeah. So. If you, it seems like if you open your eyes to it, there's a lot that you can take in from a, any situation like that. If you just pay attention, if you notice things. Yeah. So I have two more kind of practical questions I'm curious about. Okay. I'm an impractical guy. So <laughs> take your chances here. I think a lot of people when switching from being just a, if I've only ever hunted deer, one of the things a lot of people ask is what kind of firepower do I need? Do I need to change my archery setup? Do I need to change my rifle setup, firearm setup? Uh, what's your recommendation there? Can I use my whitetail gear to hunt a black bear? I'd use all my whitetail gear. Same stuff. Whether it's your bow or your rifle. Okay. Um, we've shot black bears with a 270, 7mm 08. 300 win mag 308 i mean classic yeah whitetail calibers um, you know some people say oh i can't believe you'd hunt black bears with a 7mm 08 you know what if you hit a black bear in a vital spot with 140 grain acubon or good high quality bullet partition whatever it is that bear's not going anywhere if you hit that bear in the vitals with a 60 pound draw weight bow with a good sturdy broadhead Guess what? If that broadhead's sharp, that bear's not going very far. Yeah. It's <laughs> so I, I if I was uh coming out here, I wouldn't I wouldn't invest an extra dime in equipment. If uh if I was a rifle hunter, I'd just make sure I was using some sort of premium constructed bullet. Okay. So. Well that's nice. The barrier to entry, again, very low. low. Very yeah. low for a white tail guy. Bring your same kit. Yep. Buy an over the counter tag. Hike up a hill, look around a lot, and have yeah. fun. Yeah. So then, my final question would be: Then, I wish I had. I wish I had to be dealing with this situation right now. But next year, next yeah. year I will. Can you give us some advice on eating black bears? Some ways to prepare or or make sure that because some people give the black bears a bad rap. Yeah. Um. Say they're greasy or whatever. Uh, how do you go about it so black bears are fun for the dinner table? Yeah, and for a little background. Growing up in northern Minnesota, my dad used to set out bait stations for bear hunters. And that was all fall bear hunting in September. So those bears had been on berries all summer. And they almost had a sweet taste to them. In, in some of those places, it was hard to find a strong-tasting black bear mm. when they'd been on berries all summer. In the springtime, uh, I'm just going to uh, you know let people understand that those bears probably ate <laughs> probably ate an elk gut pile just before they went in the den and they've been sleeping for four or five or six months however long they they've hibernated and they've just come out they're going to be a stronger taste they don't have the fat like they do in the fall um you know, just their their body hasn't been circulating enough vegetation and food through them. So they're going to, the spring bears are definitely stronger than, than a fall bear. Uh, 
you you'd asked me the other night how I prefer to cook a bear. I I'd prefer prefer to take a bear roast or rump roast or whatever, and uh, slow cook it, uh, in a crock pot or whatever with, you know, I I just like almost a stew type thing with carrots, pearl onions, some potatoes, uh, some flavors, however you prefer to flavor it. Uh, sometimes I'll cook it that way and then I'll take it out real quick and I'll put a little rub on it and I might throw it on the grill just for a, a quick uh, sear to it. Uh, I don't stake my back straps on a bear like I do an elk or a deer. I cook it as a whole uh, loin roast. Um, and the the only worry I always have with bears is they have a pretty high incidence of trichinosis. And so, uh, depending on who you talk to, most will say you want to cook that thoroughly at least to 165 degrees throughout. Mm -hmm. I don't like well, well done meat. So I will, uh, with that backstrap, you know, it kind of has this round, it looks like a big, long, round mm -hmm. uh, cylinder of meat. I will cut that lengthwise so that then I know the interior will get cooked quicker without having to torch the outside. Yeah. Um, and with those, I usually just put a rub on it. Uh, and for me, simpler is easier. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys who render their bear fat and stuff like that. I've, I've never done that. I always worried it's going to go rancid on me. Uh, it, it used to be in Montana that if you shot a bear, that Fish, Wildlife, and Parks would test it for trichinosis. Mm -hmm. Now that's voluntary and you have to pay the expense to get it tested for trichinosis. Uh, we both know another guy who's been on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. His crew ended up, uh, the meat eater crew, they ended up with trichinosis. They had... They learned this the hard way. Yeah. Even though they knew about it beforehand. <laughs> right. That's the that's the part where I'm like, Steve, Steve be honest. Come on, you guys knew better than that. Uh but I'm I've always been a little bit leery of, of that with bears. Yeah. Um and I've never had one test positive for trichinosis. So I, I don't know what the the uh frequency of trich trichinosis is, but if you're cooking bear meat, uh just make sure that, uh, as a safety, make sure you get it above the, I think most would tell you 165 is, yeah. you want to get it above that. I've, I've seen that too when I was so, doing my, doing my but, reading. But for me, I, I cook bear a lot like I cook elk. Uh, pretty much any elk recipe works good for bear. Cool. Um, well, I'm looking forward to putting that to the test <laughs> a year from now. And, and, and now, I don't know if I'll actually be able to do this, but. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my bear tag is still good for the fall, fall season too, right? Yep. So if I fill my deer tag early, I could. Could go bear hunting. Go look for some bears. And you will see uh, the bears here in the fall are far more concentrated than they are in mm -hmm. the spring. They are on berries. The black bears, anyhow, are on berries heavy in the fall. And you will go into these brushy creek drainages, and if you sit there and watch, you will see these bears just pulling these limbs down and mowing on anything that looks like a berry, a huckleberry, choke cherries, where we were at the last two nights. Those kind of purplish drainages uh -huh. you see, yep. those were f in the fall. Those are just laden with choke cherries. It just looked and like they I be can't in there. tell you how many fall bears I've seen in there. Interesting. Just going after it. So I'm not going to give up on my 2017 <laughs> bear tag yet. <laughs> 
there there could be a fall bear in my future maybe could be that That'd would be, be great that would be cool if yeah. i could get a deer if i can draw that antelope tag yeah on a pronghorn and then pull off a bear that would be something you do bear whitetail and pronghorn in one trip Ooh, that'd be pretty wild that would be really cool it's doable possible i don't know how likely but possible it's possible so i've got that to look forward to i guess yeah i'll be uh I'll be out elk hunting in September if you're out this way. I'll keep my eyes out for black bears. Yeah. And if I find where one's hanging out, I'll let you know. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, I might. That, uh, that is one thing in the three states we're talking about is there's also grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. uh, where we were last night, you saw the big sign that says, hey, caution. Oh, yeah. Grizzly bear area. Um, and there definitely are grizzlies in these places. Uh, you can go to other parts away from the greater Yellowstone area that has fewer grizzlies or in northwest Montana, uh, there's grizzlies there. Um, I don't worry about it that much. Uh, this time of year, uh, grizzlies are looking for carcasses. They're, they're still feeding on uh, uh, vegetation also, but they're now that I say this, I'll get eaten by one <laughs> or something. But, I hope uh, not. <laughs> I hope not. But I, I've seen really grizzlies be that black when I've been bear out black bear hunting, but they're, they seem to kind of keep to themselves. Yeah. Um, they're not in that state of hyperphagia like they are in September and October. So they're, they're pretty methodical, just lumbering around, doing their thing, digging for rodents or, or eating vegetation. Or if you find a carcass, if you find a winter kill carcass in grizzly country, there's a good chance that a bear is going to be working that carcass. Uh, but don't let that scare you. Uh, there is a reason that I don't call bears in grizzly country. My experience has been when you call for bears and they come, they're coming. You you almost have to throw a rock at them <laughs> to change their mind. Well, if that's a big silver tip grizzly, I don't want that problem because yeah. if I have to shoot it in self-defense, I've got a serious problem. It's no good either way. I may not. Uh, escape without a few scratches and bite marks so it's there's just all kinds of reasons and problems why i don't call bears in grizzly country yeah some would say oh you're a chicken newberg but that's fine i just don't need the headache that might come with it so. and, it, and it seems like your current strategy works just fine yeah. most of the time so, so no need to yeah and uh it would have been fun if if we could have brought one of the what i'll call just serious fanatic bear hunters with us. I, I I consider myself pretty casual about the bear hunting. I I go and do it, but there are some guys who that's what they live for. There, it's it's bear season, and then there's the rest of the year. <laughs> and if we would have had one of those guys with us, you would have you would have seen someone who was really wired differently. Yeah. Uh, you'd look at him like, oh, man, this, <laughs> guy this is, guy he's got something going on with bears. So <laughs> I, I just admit up front, I've, I've shot my, uh, you know, share of bears, but I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert. I just go and do it a lot where I get to observe quite yeah. a few things. Yeah. So. Well, it's been really interesting to be able to, you know, learn from you and hear how you've been doing things and observe and, and very helpful. So yeah. I'm really glad that my first bear hunt, I was able to tag along and learn versus, I'd probably just walk in circles on a mountain by myself and 
You would have seen as many bears <laughs> well, doing that as you did with me. So. I guess that's possible. Yeah. Uh, you, you got to go on your first bear hikes, not bear hunt. True, true. So. This fall. All right. Now, briefly, we're going to pause for our weekly segment with our friends at Whitetail Properties. And producer Spencer Newharth has a great guest expert today who's going to give us some advice for those who might be in the beginning stages of looking for their own little piece of Whitetail Paradise. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jeff Propes, a land specialist out of northern Missouri. And Jeff is going to be telling us about what kinds of questions you should be asking when looking at a new property. Well, there's a lot of questions when it comes to buying a piece of ground, particularly for hunting. Um, one of the most important things, uh, the key components, is the neighbors. Uh, it's probably the most asked question I get as an agent that specializes in uh, in land and particularly hunting ground. Um, obviously, if you've got neighbors that aren't like-minded or you know could be bad neighbors. Uh, it's going to cause some problems for you. I think the key component is to know the neighborhood you're buying into, try to get a good idea of the neighbors and what their, you know, what their goals are, what their thoughts are in terms of what they're hunting or shooting, excuse me. And uh, that is probably one of the key components. Um, another, another question is, is, you know, does the farm have, you know, what kind of income does the farm have? Actually, that may be the most important of all to some folks. But, you know, the income potential on the farm, I mean, is there CRP on the farm? If so, when does that CRP expire? And is it, you know, when does it run out? Number two, is, it, is, there, is there a tillable agreement on the farm to rent the crop ground out? Uh, you know, and who's the farmer? And is the farmer uh, reputable? Is he, does he pay good? Is his, his rates good? And, you know, what does that program consist of? You know, um, key components to the farm is obviously you want – uh, to, to have good cover for bedding, for security to hold the deer, and you obviously need food. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Jeff currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash probes. That's P-R-O-P-S-T. <laughs> so I want to kind of switch gears. Sure. Because the other thing that's been on my mind a lot while we were out here doing these bear hunts was uh, you know, the fact that we were hunting on public land. And of all the people I know, there's few people I know that are more tapped into what's going on with public land these days than you. Um, you've been a great resource for our audience, you know, coming on the show a couple of times and, and talking about kind of introducing our audience to this whole threat of the public land transfer and some mm-hmm. of these things, you know, back in 2016, you talked about that. And I think our audience um, is very well versed on the basics of that. Now I talk about it a decent bit. It's been something that I've been passionately following um, myself now for the past few years, but can you bring us up to speed on what's been going on recently? What are the things, sure. uh, you know, we've talked about the whole HR 621 deal, um, but I'm kind of curious on your thoughts on, you know, since, since the election, there's been all sorts of talk of different things. What's, what's on your mind now? What are the things that um, have changed or might be changing or that we need, need to be aware of on this issue? Yeah. And when I was on a year ago, uh, and we talked about the whole transfer of the public lands to the states. Uh, I think the level of awareness and understanding of that topic has increased dramatically, not just in the West, throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people now realize that the Western state land boards are not very hunter and shooter friendly. So transferring these lands to them is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And there's been so much pushback on that, that, 
you're starting to hear some of these Western congressional delegates uh, walk away from that idea because we have done, the hunting community has done a great job of making that political poison. Oh, you want to, we, we have made it obvious that transferring these lands is akin to preparing them to sell them. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that is the reality. Now, these people, these, these elected officials had ha- have had to try to answer some questions of, well, what's in the details of that? Well, they stumble and fumble and look like fools. And so I, I think that phase is starting, they're starting to pivot and say, boy, that's political suicide. Let's, let's not, let's not talk about selling the lands. We, we learned that in the eighties and nineties that if we talk about selling them, we're going to get thumped. Now that, that marketing strategy, we strategy we had about transferring them, we're getting thumped pretty hard on that also. So now it's, it's morphing into a more nuanced, uh, idea of let's cut agency budgets. Let's cut this. Let's make let's do let's impair the value of these lands let's not fund all of the management actions let's not fund all the backlog of repairs and maintenance let's not give the agencies money to do their work so people get frustrated with the agency um you and i were talking about how i need public land film permits Mm -hmm. so I've been calling this forest saying, I need a film permit to go bear hunting. Uh, Not where we were hunting, but in a different state. Well, their budgets have been cut so much that where there used to be one permit officer, not just for film permits, but all permitting, special events and all kinds of stuff. One one officer per forest, now that person might cover four or five districts. And that's an example of, well, if we cut their budgets, their ability to do their job right. is less and less, and people are going to get frustrated. And the more frustrated the masses are, the greater the likelihood of us being able to convince them to sell it, to somehow change ownership, to, to whatever. So you, so you do think that even though they may be pulling back in some of their statements or proposals as to a transfer or, or, transfer or a sale – that's still the end game, mm-hmm. but it's it. They're going to be approaching it by death by million cuts with all these different budget cuts or whatever it might be that yep. can eventually lead to maybe changing public opinion in some way so they can get away with this. Right, and things like oh, we're going to say we're giving the Forest Service more money this year, but we're going to give it all to firefighting costs. We're going to cut their their daily work of. Their, their logging programs, their road programs, their whatever program it might be, wildlife programs, conservation programs, watershed programs. We're going to cut all that. We're going to give them more money in firefighting. And then we can tell everybody, oh, look what we did. We gave the Forest Service more money. Well, that, that doesn't do them any good to do the things that require active land management. And they, they're, it's, it's, again, part of this strategy of, I think they've hit the reset button that, guess what? We're not going to accomplish this in the next five years. Let's set a goal of accomplishing it in the next 20 years. And we will starve these agencies on the vine. And there's no doubt, you ask anybody, there's always places for improvement. But the Forest Service, if I remember right, uh, and I might have my numbers wrong, but 
in relative numbers, it's going to be pretty close. The Forest Service had, uh, it, it back in the 90s, uh, if they had 50,000 employees, then they're down to 25,000 employees now. Wow. Yeah, so there's, and, and what they're about half of what they were in the 90s as far as employees. Jeez. And so the demand on them keeps growing, though. Oh, we want you to do this now. Oh, guess what? We've got an invasive weed problem across the West. We want you to take care of the uh -huh. invasive weeds. Oh, guess what? We're having more catastrophic wildfires across the West. As, as we suppress them and suppress them, the ones that pop up get bigger and bigger. So there's all these growing demands on them, and their budgets are getting cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. So I'm all about smaller government. I'm all about efficiency. But you reach a point where you're no longer cutting fat. You're no longer cutting meat even. You're cutting the bone. And a lot of these forests, a lot of the BLM lands, a lot of these federal agencies, it's impractical to think they're going to be able to do all the things we ask them to do. And Congress knows that. Uh, and so it, here's kind of the irony of it in my mind. Every frustration that the public has that relates to public lands or public land management could be fixed by Congress. Every single one of them, whether it's a priority, whether it's a policy, whether it's a budgetary issue. And what do they do? The, the, the greatest critics right now hold the Senate committees that oversee public lands and the House committees that oversee public lands. And there's not a single bill they've introduced to address any of these supposed frustrations we have. None. Zero. They've introduced crazy bills like uh, on your podcast, you talked about uh, Congressman Chavitz from Utah had House Bill 621 and 622. Yeah. None of those solve any of the frustrations we're talking about. So are these people serious about better land management now that they have all the power? And they ignore it and they keep focusing on things that impair the land or uh, go down crazy paths. It's hard for me to believe that they have any intent of better land management and they still have the intent that someday, somehow, we're going to make these lands so impaired, so degraded that the public won't have any problem getting rid of them. It might take us 20 years, but if that's what it takes, that's what we're going to do. So these types of things, it's not just even hypothetical, right? These types of cuts, they are happening already. Uh, like, I mean, yeah. this, yeah. is, this is happening. How, here's what I worry about, and I think it's probably to your point by design, that it's harder for the average guy or girl to be able to keep track of all these different things right. and to know, like, how do I make a difference? Because when something like 621 came out, it was so easy. It was, right. they want to sell 3.3 <laughs> million acres. And that's like a very easy thing to say, whoa, that doesn't sound good. Rally people around it. And you can make, you know, make a lot of noise and make a difference. It's a lot harder to say, well, there's 16 different cuts and there's all these different, a little, this deregulation here is going to hurt our water and this is going to hurt whatever. I mean, how do we as hunters and anglers and sportsmen and women, what do we do with all this? Because it seems really tricky. It, it is, Mark. And that's that's what's going to make it harder is when it's one big target coming at you, you can dodge that bullet, you know, 621. Uh -huh. or, you know, right now, uh, Congressman Amaday from Nevada has this bill introduced. I can't remember the number. I should, but I can't. But it's if you are adjacent to a, 
a piece of public land, we, we can sell you all any of these parcels under 160 acres. Well, there's a lot of 160 acre parcels that control access to 10,000 acres. He's saying you can, we'll sell the public land to you if you're adjacent right. to it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy bill. Um, so ones like that are easy targets. Yeah. Uh, and you can almost look at, all right, who's behind some of these ideas like Amade from Nevada. He's, you know, he's a stated, uh, <laughs> he, he's a Chavitz, uh, Rob Bishop, yeah. uh, disciple. Uh, a, so a you can kind of look at some of that stuff. stuff and say, I don't think they want to change this to the to our benefit their, yeah. their history shows that <laughs> that's not what their goal is um but it does require more vigilance at this point because every one of these changes are going to be more subtle and more nuanced the the i just go back to the position of these public lands are a value and i continue to in, impress upon any elected official i talk to these lands are important to me don't buy into this foolishness that someone may be pitching you that, oh, this is no good or that's no good or we don't need this or we don't need that. Um, when you have an approach that is so many little cuts, as you call it, it, if you tried to chase every one of those little rabbit trails, you'd wear yourself yeah. out. At this point, I think it's important for people to contact their elected officials and say, these public lands, this is what I use them for. This is how important they are. Any public land issue that comes up, I hope you will consider that I value these public lands. They're a big part of who I am, what I see America to be. And I contact elect, elected officials even if there's not a fire. I want them to be reminded You know, every couple of weeks. Maybe they get an email or a phone call or if I see them at an event, hey, you know, just want to make sure you understand that all these public land things, I'm about doing things to improve the value of public lands, yeah. not impair the value. Um, and again, that I always worry that some of these things we ask people to do goes back to, you know, high school civics class. Right. But there is some of that to it. Um, if the, say it's a congressperson from Wisconsin who really you know, they have northern Wisconsin, they've got some national forests, but they don't have much for BLM land or whatever. If that person is hearing time and again, hey, I'm, I, you know, public lands are a priority for me. Public lands are, are a priority for me. And they hear that enough times, even if it's not their, uh, I guess, priority issue, when that topic comes up, it's not going to just be rubber stamped according to, Oh, I'm just gonna, you know, toe the party line right. here. So it's. Uh, I wish I could tell you that you know there's this or that, but as a general rule, now it's all about how do we impair these lands? How do we degrade them? How do we cut agency budgets? Let's not fix any of the frustrations. Let's let the frustration continue. Let's let the frustration build. Uh, Let's continue the attack on "quote unquote" the Fed, even though the Fed is Congress. Is that it's, uh, it's them, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I always point that out to them. Make sure whenever a Congressperson or Senator complains about the Feds, make sure and remind them that they are the Fed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the they are, you know, and they want to say, "Oh, the bureaucrat this, the bureaucrat that." Well, 
the local BLM range manager or the local forest service ranger, he doesn't set the policy. He doesn't set the budget. He, this all comes from D.C. And in most cases, that is a local person. Right. Yeah, they're the, they're the person <laughs> coaching Little League yeah. or, you know, the, the volunteer at the fire department or whatever. They're, they're just living in the community. They got yeah. the marching orders from D.C. And D.C. is counting that we continue to, to accept the paradigm that they shouldn't be responsible and that it's those damn feds. It's... They're, they hope we continue to think that way. Mm -hmm. I refuse to think that way. And I, I try to encourage other people that if you have a frustration about your public lands, make sure and contact your congressperson or your senator and say, what are you doing about this? Yeah. Because odds are they're not doing anything about it. It's, it's an interesting strategy you mentioned here because to your point, these people complain or, or make statements about these issues for which we need to transfer or sell these public lands because the federal government can't manage it. But in reality, they are the ones inhibiting that management or not allowing the budgets to get there. And I'm curious about another aspect of this. And I think it, it's some of what you're referring to here, but what we're seeing now in some cases is now deregulation of a lot of things that impact public lands. Um, and regulations are such a dirty word and Almost always we hate regulation or many people talk about, you know, it's um, we're over-regulated to death. Lots of times we talk about, but in these types of cases, are there some issues of deregulation that are happening that are going to be negatively impacting our public lands and leading towards these goals that some of these people have? Um, I mean, impacting clean air, clean water. Yeah. Uh, Guaranteed. Lines. Look at the people who are trying to roll back regulations on clean water. Mm -hmm. I, I struggle to understand how the, the, the world leader where the cradle of conservation was, the, the, this is where conservation was born and grew from is the United States. And we're having discussions about how clean our water should or shouldn't be. I, I I'm trying to figure out wh what's bad about clean water. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say there aren't instances where maybe some employee of an agency oversteps and doesn't use common sense. But to use those one in a thousand examples for purposes of reducing water quality standards, I, I, I just, I, I can't go there. I, clean air, clean water. Productive lands, that's everything my life is built around is conservation. And anyone who wants to get on these ideological bandwagons of, you know, oh, well, the EPA this, blah, blah, blah. You know what? They, they're going to make some mistakes. Every agency, every, we all are going to make a mistake along the way. But there's a reason the Cuyahoga River isn't on fire today. Mm -hmm. Because we have clean water standards. There's a reason that we have the best drinking water, the cleanest water system uh, that, that we've known in our lifetimes is because of these regulations and because of these agencies. What do we want to do? We want to go back to when, you know, whatever it might be. So, so where we're sitting right here, 
90 miles west of here is the largest Superfund site mm-hmm. in yep. the world. It's the Berkeley Pit in Butte, Butte. Montana. Yeah. Prior to clean water regulations, that killed the entire river from Butte, Montana, down to Missoula. Clark's Fork, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to go back to that? The jobs, B- Butte the jobs is the, Randy, right? Right. Butte is the largest city, I believe, in the United States that does not have potable water. Wow. Has to bring their water in over a mountain pass. Is that what we want to go back to? I, so this kind of talk is, it, it's, it, it just dumbfounds me that, that we in the United States are even having that kind of a discussion. <laughs> and if, if anyone listening can tell me why we need dirtier water, I'm, I'm always open to, to differing opinions. And I, I, some of these politicians, I say, well, tell me why we need dirtier water. And they just look at me like, well, uh, 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 mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and it comes down to this, this, these party lines though, right? Where you, you if, okay, if I am going to be associated with, with this branch or this, this party, then I have to agree, always have to deregulate, always have to prioritize jobs or always. Right. And if, if I, if I disagree with this, you're afraid to say it or you're afraid yeah. to, you're an apologist for it. Exactly. Um, how do we break out of that? Because I feel like there's there's so much of that. Yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily have the answer. I can tell you how I've broke out of it. I am not an apologist for anybody. Uh, I, the only thing I'm an apologist for is clean air, clean water, productive lands, public lands, wild places, and wildlife. The rest of it, you know what? If, if you're against that stuff, I'm not making any apologies for yeah. it, even if I voted for you. There's a lot of times I vote for somebody. And then they come up with a dumb idea. If anybody can help sway them to the point of common sense and give them give them some confidence that, hey, if I buck the system, I'm not going to lose my position, it's those of us who voted yeah. for them. I, I think we as a, city, as a group collective uh, country have fallen into this apologistic, mindset that oh if i voted for the person i can't criticize them i gotta defend them yeah, yeah. no I, not me and and i think in some respects if we would flex our muscle to say hey we're gonna push back when you tow the party line or you come up with some crazy idea then they would be more inclined to one listen to us but realize you know what i can buck the system and i'm gonna have some support out there uh, this whole rollback of everything as it relates to clean air and clean water is a hard one for me to understand. And I'm a pretty conservative guy, but I thought the United States aspired to have cleaner air and cleaner water. Yeah. And none of the people who I, I you know, I, I get the fortune or misfortune, whatever you want to call it, uh, of being involved in a lot of conference calls and other discussions of stuff that's going on in D.C., and none of the people behind the, the, the ideas that we need to get rid of cleaner air and cleaner water, none of them have given me their reasons how they're, or their ideas of how they're going to make our air cleaner or our water cleaner. I don't, I don't think they're trying to change all this to make our air and water cleaner. <laughs> yeah. If they are, uh, their track record doesn't demonstrate mm-hmm. that. And if there's anything more basic to our life necessities of clean air and clean water. I think 
we probably take it for granted. And this is where, I, you know, I'm kind of an old codger. Uh, I'm 52, you're 29. I remember before unleaded gasoline, you would go to a large city and every city had smog. Even a city of 50,000 people had smog. Wow. I remember the Rainy River where I grew up in northern Minnesota. You didn't eat the walleyes out of Rainy River because of the paper mill upstream in International Falls in Fort Francis. There were warnings, do not eat these fish right below there. <sighs> Why? Because, And it's not like at that time people said, oh, I want to pollute the river. Some of it was we just didn't know what effect right. it was having right. at that time. But now, through regulation, through change, through better ideas, that, uh, that, that's just an example. Water quality has improved. The fishing has improved. So many things have improved as a result of it. Is, is that really where we want to go back to? But, Randy, if you're talking about the environment and stopping pollution and clean air, you're a, you're a far left wingnut. You know, if that's what people want to call me, I don't really care. I, I mean, I'm not. I I own right. more guns than any far left wing nut I know. If you come to my house, I'm sure ATF would be like, "Man, we, what this guy, <laughs> what, this it's, guy kind of preparing for Armageddon here, or what?" But it's supremely I, frustrating, though, to if it, you to sometimes if you say that you care about these things, like why can't a hunter, angler, firearm owner also care about these things? We, it's it's necessary to what we love to do. That's a great question, Mark. I, 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 I almost say, how could they not care right. about it? Right. It, it, you know, it's so critical to the things we love. And, and I do worry that in my community that I identify with the most and where my mo my platforms are mostly heard is the hunting world. I worry that the hunting world isn't going to stand up and be counted. This is, this is our time. This is, if we don't stand up, we we are the, we want to take credit for being the the original conservationists going back even before uh, uh, Roosevelt. We go back to Grinnell. We go back to Marsh. We go, we go back to uh, you know uh, way way back Audubon. All of those people were hunters, and they were the ones who started planting the seeds of conservation. And we want to make that we want to claim that mantle today. How can you claim that I am the carrier of the torch of conservation, but I'm going to stand silent when we decide we're going to have cleaner or dirtier air and dirtier water? Tell me how you can reconcile that. I can't. And where's our credibility when outsiders look at that? Right. And we try to try to carry that mantle. Right. And, and we, we try to uh, use that as some type and of... And we, because of peer pressure, whatever it is, ideological pressure... We become apologists for those people who want to make our water dirtier or our air dirtier. Uh, we, we run a risk. I think the hunting community and the fishing community, we run a risk of losing our credibility and our claim to the mantle of conservation if we stand silent when this stuff goes on. And this isn't just important for the integrity of the resource, but also I think for the future of the right to do what we're doing because i think oh, yeah. a big part of how we communicate to the non-hunting public about why hunting is relevant and valuable still today is because of our role as conservationists right and if they look at that and say okay you claim to be conservationist and then they see ah, eh, well you only care about the three animals you want to shoot you don't care about the clean air you don't care about the clean water you're not concerned about these bigger th you just want your gun and you want to be able to shoot deer 
then I, don't, I think we don't have a whole lot to stand on there. The rest of society is way more perceptive than that, and we're going to look like hypocrites. Mm-hmm. We, we, I know that might be uncomfortable for some people to have to come to that conclusion, but the time is now to say, am I a conservationist or am I a hypocrite? Am I going to roll up my tent because someone I voted for is, I, I don't want the discomfort of my, you know, one of my coworkers or somebody else giving me grief. Cause I, I, yeah, I voted for the same guy, but man, if I stand up and speak on behalf of clean air or, or productive lands or whatever it is, I'm going to get grief about it. Well, if that's all the, uh, if that's enough to sway you from speaking up, then the question becomes, are you really committed to conservation? Mm-hmm. I mean, Roosevelt said it. The wildlife and its habitat cannot speak for itself. We must, and therefore we will. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was 120 years ago that he said that, or 115 years ago. Just as true today. It's absolutely true. And I've been, recently I've been in my speaking presentations and some YouTube clips we're working on. I... And I told you this story the other day about where you were camped. Mm, yeah. That was going to be a reservoir. And it blows my mind. No, I, I'm working on this series of stories about how conservation has never been easy. It's never been convenient and it's never been comfortable. And if we think now we can just bail out whenever it gets hard or we can walk away because it's not a convenient time, or, you know what, that's a pretty uncomfortable discussion to have, so I'm just going to ignore it. If we do that, we are going to lose our credibility as the leaders of conservation. It's going to be damaging for us in the hunting and angling community, and it's going to be really damaging for the landscapes and the wild creatures that depend on it. Yeah. It's just the way it is. Even if you... Even if you don't care about this like ideologically just as a pragmatist like just thinking about the (laughs) just purely if you want to focus on your individual future ability to do the things you like to do even if you aren't super passionate about these things but you just want to i still want to be able to fill my freezer it just makes sense that we need to be caring about these things and doing something about these things. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, we've both experienced you to a much larger degree, I'm sure than myself, but we've, we've faced blowback for things we talk about that's uncomfortable or outside of the party line or whatever it might be. And I think to your point, we have to be confident in our beliefs and uh, willing to stand up for these things. And, you know, it's not always me rainbows and butterflies and big bucks and bulls. No. Um, I mean, uh, I spoke out pretty loud on some of these things in the last week and my emails and private messages and Facebook messages have been pretty pointed, but that implies that I'm worried about the blowback. I am not. If I, I'm 52, I don't know if I've got one day, one year, one decade or 30 years left on this planet. But whatever it is, I'm not going to take a leave of absence about making the landscapes better, more productive for my kids, 
my my hopefully grandkids or the next generations mm-hmm. I, i'm just not and if that com- that it comes with risks for sure it comes with pressures it comes from those days when you know, someone you appreciate who you've had a friendship with calls you up and says, Newberg, you off your rock? Yeah, maybe I am. But guess what? I'm not standing here letting a, a political tide roll back everything that the hunters and anglers before me have fought for for the last 150 years. I'm not. And if that causes a, a wrinkle in our friendship, I guess maybe we didn't have as good a friendship as I thought. Yeah, it it just for me, uh, you know, as someone who has platforms like you do, uh, I think it's more incumbent than ever on us to provide some voice and leadership to these causes. Because if we fold up the tent, we, we've been granted these privileges, mm-hmm. these amazing uh, lives of being spokespeople for these causes, and. If I decide, oh, it's a little too tough a sled in here, I think I'm going to just bail out for a couple of years. Well, guess what, Randy? You shouldn't have these platforms then. That's that. That's my thought on it. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. So, and I think to all this that we've just been talking about here, you know, we we start our conversation with public land, some mm-hmm. of the threats to public land, but. Some of these things we're talking about more recently, this applies to whether you hunt public land out west or you hunt the 30 acres behind your house in New York. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a nationwide issue. This impacts all of our hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, breathing, no matter where you live. Um, so I think that this is one of those very clearly core issues to all of us that is, um, it's unfortunate sometimes that we... Uh, I don't know, because we don't want to be associated with a different group or because we're uncomfortable with the same people that talk about this and march on this. They're different than me. But you know what? We actually do care about some of the same things too, and we can look past some of these differences because in the end, we need a couple core things here that we all care about. Yeah, there's there's a bumper sticker in Montana, and I'm going to get it a little bit uh, uh, off when I say it, but it's something of gay hippie loggers for Jesus. And it's it's kind of, uh, the subtitle is, I don't care who you are, I, you know, uh, uh, open minds yeah. and, and different perspectives are helpful. Uh, and whenever I see that bumper sticker, I kind of chuckle because coming from a logging family, uh, I kind of think about, you know, that that, that covers the whole spectrum yeah, right there. Um, but it, it's usually and it usually has some little subtitles around it but when you were talking about how no matter who you associate with or where you come from as your own kind of personal beliefs on these topics we we got to get to the point where we we can say yeah we disagree on some things but on this topic i don't care what your opinion is on on topic c Mm -hmm. on topic a if if you're for uh you know conservation and healthy uh landscapes and and water and clean air we'll sort out the differences on the other stuff at a different time mm-hmm. i'm not going to run scared and hide because someone's going to say oh i saw you uh, at a meeting and you were talking to so and so yeah guess what so and so is concerned about productive lands just like i am 
it's we're in that weird time where it's you know people want to find ways to move everyone over to their own little corner mm-hmm. it's who can build the the biggest army in a little corner rather than let's build big armies big coalitions in the middle for the important things and, and it's easy it's easy to completely filter your whole world into these little things. Like I only get news from this little tiny viewpoint and my whole social media feed is just people that think exactly like I do. Right. And it's really easy to get stuck in these little corners. Um, maybe even you're completely unaware of it, Mm -hmm. but to your point, like last night we were talking about this and we were talking about, you know, what are some of the things you've learned over your years? Um, and just the importance of always trying to be open to those different perspectives and getting information from all arenas and trying to look at things objectively from different ways of looking at things. I think it's increasingly rare today, but ever more important to do that because it's so easy to get just. Yeah. I I don't want to live in an echo chamber where everybody says the same thing I say. And as we were talking last night, I engage with people if if this person sent out an email to a hundred people in the outdoor world, every person would delete that email request. Me, I'll email them back and say, "What's up? Let's let's have a discussion. Let's have some dialogue." Mm-hmm. Even though I know I disagree with them on ninety nine percent of the issues, I want to hear their perspectives, and. I want them to understand the perspectives of the community I come from. Whereas there, there's risk in that. Uh, sometimes, you know, the people will say, I can't believe you're talking to that person. Why, why would you give any feedback to that group or blah, 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 whatever it is. But I'm one of those guys who I want as many perspectives as I possibly can find. And I've still got my values, my principles, my why, you know, my, my life is driven by my why. Why do I do this? Why am I here? Why, why am I uh, spending my time on things? That's never going to change. But it doesn't mean that if I listen to somebody who has a different, different perspective that I agree with them, it means that I'm trying to learn more. I'm trying to understand and it's, I, I think we've, we've gone so far away from that, that everybody's afraid to engage and interact with those of differing opinions. I'm not, I, I enjoy it. I, you know, I, I can accept it today. You know, odds are I'm never going to agree with this person on most things, but on that thing, they, they might've had a point. Yeah. I'm also interested how, People outside of our community of hunters and anglers view us as hunters, yeah. hunters and anglers. That's a big part of why I engage with some of these groups is how is the rest of society seeing us? Because we see ourselves through a lens that if you grow up hunting and fishing, you are different. You are never going to see the world the way people do who don't hunt and fish and are connected to right. those landscapes and hold them to a priority that we do. So accept the fact that we are different. We see the world differently, but we are only five to 10% of the, of the world or of our country. So if you want to understand how we're going to have a future when we're that small of a minority, you need to be listening and, and reaching out to figure out how do the rest of our society see us? 
at least it's it's helpful to me and and I try to try to do that and know that there's going to be risks and I'm going to take some lumps along the way for doing it but oh well yeah but to your point it's just inherently necessary for the future yeah if we don't if we don't pay attention to that and nurture that and be thoughtful about that perception um we don't have a future no we we don't uh Shane Mahoney uh, the Elk Foundation, uh, and you probably saw it on your feeds, he, he did this piece called Relevance. Mm-hmm. How do we stay relevant when hunters are 5% of the population? And anyone who hasn't seen that, I'd suggest that they go and, and read it It's uh, or listen to it. It's, what is it, four minutes, Just I think. Minutes. We actually posted, I embedded it on Wired to Hunt in a blog post. Oh, did you? Like okay. Or two so they should go so. out to Wired and Hunt and, and see that. and And just think about, the fact that hey we're 5%. We in in our country 5% 5% does not control the future. You fit within that in some way shape or form based on how the other 95% accepts you or views you. Yeah. So, how do we keep our relevance? Cuz right now we're very relevant. Our our history, uh, our accomplishments, what we do for wildlife and conservation is more than than what the other 95% does per capita and maybe collect maybe more than what they do collectively. Uh, we got to stay true to that. Yeah. We gotta communicate that we need to not step outside of that um terrific heritage that we have and start doing some stupid things that knock down all the tremendous achievements of our of our forefathers and the conservationists and hunters and anglers before us. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of pitfalls there. Yeah, we we were not we don't need to get into every different <laughs> no, but man, I mean, there's just and I, I I probably talk about this too much in the podcast. They're probably sick of me talking about it, but all this stuff is <laughs> it's just it's important if we want to be able to talk about bear hunts, if we want to be able to talk about strategies for chasing elk, if we want to talk about the best way to hang a trail camera to you know pattern a mature whitetail buck, we need to be having these conversations and yeah. we need to be caring about these things. Yeah, I I just think about in my lifetime. I grew up in northern Minnesota. The nearest big community to us was Duluth, Minnesota. St. Louis River dumps into Lake Superior in the Duluth, Superior, Wisconsin area. And when I was growing up, nobody ever thought of fishing where the St. Louis River dumps into Lake Superior. In fact, there, there, it was the start of so many invasive non-native species in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes had become, I, I think when the Cuyahoga River started on fire in Cleveland in 1967, I was three years old. It kind of rose our collective awareness about a lot of things. Uh, but even, you know, growing up there and seeing how the Great Lakes were looked at as a little bit of a dumping ground, uh, you know, taken for granted. And what 30 years, 40 years of hard effort, uh, collective sacrifice, uh, prioritizing, cleaning up the Great Lakes. I wonder if people now take for granted that, look at how many tens of millions of people live within close proximity to the Great Lakes. Yeah. I wonder how many of them really think back of how bad it could be and how much work it took to get here. Are are we going to 
stand and and do what it takes to to keep it that way or are we going to let the hands of time roll back are we are we going to put it in reverse and to me the great lakes are a great picture to for anyone listening to just think about or, or go and you can do some quick research on it and you'll see there's no environment no ecosystem that has been probably as abused as the great lakes or has shown such remarkable response and change to smart policy, hard work, and just making it a priority to clean it up. And one final point on all this, that, you know, we talk about some of the ideas and proposals to roll back some of these things. And lots of times the, um, the justification for that is that we need to increase job growth. We need to make it easier for businesses, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's very clear as our community is doing a better job of quantifying the job and economic impact that outdoor recreation and wild productive landscapes have. I think it's very clear that protecting these places, managing these places properly, it is good for jobs. It is good for economic growth. I, I'm going to get the number wrong, but a new economic report was just released recently from you know, taking a look at the outdoor recreation economy. And maybe you know the number, but $876 billion yeah. sounds like what I remember yeah, seeing. Yeah, something like that. It was almost $900 billion. It is a tremendous, tremendous driver of economic growth, of jobs within across the country, whether it be mm-hmm. specifically public lands or recreation Fishing, you know, fishing, hunting, whatever, yeah. hiking. I mean, it's a tremendous job grow, grower in rural communities where some of the traditional um, jobs are starting to change with the way the world's changing. This is this is a future. This is something that works now. It's going to grow jobs and grow the economy in the future. Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, it also is what allows us to enjoy this way of life. Yeah, and it, it, what's more sustainable than outdoor-related jobs? Yeah. It's it's predicated on good, healthy environments, uh, landscapes that are productive for the things we love, and people make a living doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, last I checked, that was as close to the best solution policy experts could get to. Yeah. So why are we thinking about doing things that compromise that for the sake of this little job and every job if it's your job it's not this little job i mean i get it uh i've seen mills close i've seen mechanization displace loggers um so that when it's your job it, it is important but collectively we have to look at that and say all right how how do we make a, a true assessment about this that doesn't discount all of the outdoor benefits, all the recreation, all the the jobs that you just mentioned, and that part of the economy, because the other sides do really good jobs, uh, do a really good uh, job of converting their activity to dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. We've never been that good at it. We've always relied on the oh, it's for this, it's cultural, it's social, and it's all that. But what we're finding is, if you want to talk numbers and jobs and economics. Our, our things that we love, we can stand toe-to-toe and have an equally compelling yeah. economic argument as well as all these other things we talk about. Yeah. And to something you said earlier, this ty- caring about these types of things, standing up for these types of things, it's never been convenient, it's never been popular, it's never been easy, 
and I think it's kind of encouraging um, as I've like thought about these things and, and uh, you know, struggled with what should I do or how do I do this or how, how's this going to play or, you know, am I risking the future of whatever I'm doing? And I, I look back at people like Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, George Bird Grinnell or Ella Leopold or Bob Marshall or all these different people that made a significant impact on whether it be just the future of productive landscapes or public lands or whatever it might be. In every single instance, as I've been studying the history of this, there's been tremendous, tremendous controversy. There's been tremendous blowback. They're wildly unpopular. There's people calling them all sorts of crazy things. Um, In the short term, you're going to get that. But history is the ultimate judge. And I think, as, as, as Roosevelt said, you know, these things need to be preserved for, you know, not just those today, but in the womb of time for eternity. And I think if you're focused on the long term, if you're focused on the future of these things, if you keep that as like a compass, a compass that you point towards, and if that's part of your why, uh, then I think it's okay to take your lump sometimes and maybe step outside of the lines of what your buddies think you should be doing or your political party or your community. Um, I, I, I agree 100%, Mark. And the history shows that. So Roosevelt, and he's always the good example one because we study him in history, but he got thrown out of his own party. Mm-hmm. He had to go start another party. But of all of his critics at the time, how many of them are on the face of Mount Rushmore? Right. How many have history judged worthy of being one of the four people that represent American ideas to such an extent that they're on Mount Rushmore. None of his critics. You can't even, no one, you would have to Google it to to find a name of one of his critics that is of memory. Yeah. So he, yeah, he was president, so he had the big uh, big pulpit, but point of that is it wasn't easy for him. Mm -hmm. He got thrown out. He got ostracized. He, he was looked at as the wild wing nut, the, that Western cowboy dude mm-hmm. from the Dakotas and Montana who's got these crazy ideas about hunting and fishing and conservation. We need to get rid of him, and they did. Yep. But history has judged him as having a much clearer vision than his critics did. Yep. So I, that always gives me uh, comfort because I go through those days like everybody where it's like, oh, man. I don't know. Am I out in the weeds? I'm I'm really getting a lot of heat over this. Uh, But so did other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. Just comes with territory. Stand in line, take a number. There you go. (laughs) I think this is a, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. So Randy, both now you've given me another couple hours of your time and you've given me hours and hours on the mountain. I, I can't thank you enough. It has been a privilege and an honor to go bear hunting with you, to you know, just have conversations like this with you. Um, you know, like I said last night when we were driving back from the hunt, um, you are a tremendous role model for young hunters and anglers and conservationists to look at someone like you who is willing to stand up and speak out on these things. And, uh, and I respect that tremendously and I appreciate that. And, uh, I'm very glad there's people like you for people like me to learn from. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate all that. And I, I appreciate, what you are doing there's and i told you this last night there's cadre of 
Yeah. And you, you kind of age yourself when you say it. <laughs> There's this cadre of, of younger thinkers in the conservation and public land hunting, fishing world that I'm that give me such great comfort that, hey, we're, we're going to be on the right path. And you and your listeners and your followers, I, I don't think that maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I hope they understand. Maybe that's what I should say. I hope your listeners understand what an impact they're having. Because I have seen just in the last two or three years, the needle is rising. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the pivot point has come. And it's because of people like you, your advocacy, your, your listeners, your group of people that uh, are making a huge difference. And, I, you know, if I can give a couple hours of my time telling BS stories to that, <laughs> thanks for having me. Hey, it works out pretty well all the way around. So. Thank you. How about next time we talk, um, we'll be talking about a whitetail trifecta, maybe. There we go. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. And there you go. Another episode is in the books and some really important topics to keep in mind there, I think. And I hope you guys found this to be as inspiring and motivating as I have. You know, you guys and gals, the Wired Hunt community, you and me, Let's all keep on grinding together to protect our hunting heritage and our wild lands and our wildlife because if we don't do it, who will? All that said, before we go, big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And thank you for listening. I appreciate and value each and every one of you. You guys are an amazing group of outdoorsmen and women, and I hope you enjoy a great spring weekend, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. It's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.